I'm Aaron Hinkin. Welcome to Life in the Balance, a monthly radio program here on WYPR that's um, kind of a unique hybrid of public policy talk and first-person storytelling. We build each episode of Life in the Balance around the real-life stories of people, around the lives that literally hang in the balance, you could say, in, in one way or another. And then we invite folks from the policy and academic and nonprofit worlds to listen along with us to those stories, and we challenge them to share their insights about the larger social and political and economic issues at play. Life in the Balance is a monthly feature here on WYPR. We've covered a variety of issues from homelessness to post-incarceration struggles to disability rights. And I should say you can listen to uh, all those episodes at WYPR.org slash Life in the Balance or Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your podcasts. So it's September. It's back to school time. And uh, we are taking this time to look at education levels for kids and adults in Baltimore. Some of the statistics are sobering. A 2009 study out of Loyola University uh, found that an estimated 200,000 adults were considered functionally illiterate in our city. Uh, In 2017, six Baltimore schools, five high schools and one middle school reported that zero students were proficient in the state-tested subjects of math and reading. These educational gaps correspond with socioeconomic factors nationwide. 43% of adults with the lowest literacy levels live in poverty, and 70% of adult welfare recipients have low literacy levels as well. The effects of an incomplete education can follow a person throughout his or her life. The average income for a high school dropout is around $20,000. That's $10,000 less than a typical high school graduate and $36,000 less than someone with a bachelor's degree. So today on the show, we are addressing the topic of adult education and literacy. And before we get into any more of the uh, policy and statistics, I want to introduce you to a woman named Anna Harris. Mrs. Harris never made it past the sixth grade. She's uh, now 73 years old, and she's working on getting her GED, thanks to the help of the Baltimore nonprofit Learning Is For Tomorrow, or LIFT. We're going to learn more about LIFT and the work they do later in this program. But first, let's meet Mrs. Harris. My name is Anna Harris, um, a single parent, and uh, didn't finish high school, so this school was very inspirational to me to finish my education. It was very important to me. My childhood was being the, after the older sisters and brothers left home, one brother went in the military, my sister got married and left. I was like the eldest girl in the house. So we had responsibilities, chores to do as getting out of school and uh, cleaning up, preparing food. Nobody said, hit the books, do your homework. You know, that was just before bed. But I had a lot of responsibilities of my younger siblings. So educational-wise, I dropped out of school at seven, I mean, at the seventh grade. I think I went one week. And after that, I never went back to school. I had a child to raise. I became the single parent mom. And I just asked God, don't let this happen to me again. There was a reason, but just don't let this happen. And I found an opportunity after all of my kids had gone and got theirs. I wanted some me time. Before Mrs. Harris could even think about pursuing her GED, she had to raise seven kids, five of her own and two she adopted. And she did this all while working full-time. I worked for the city 19 years, and I kid you not, I took home a salary of $32,000 a year. Before then, I was a private duty nurse. 
I made $420 a week, worked 12 hours a day, seven days a week, trying to raise a family. I worked the knife shift so that I could come home and send my kids to school. So it was a struggle. And once the struggle was over, I I, I not only became a single parent, but I became a responsible parent who wanted what everybody else had. And I put education and God as top of my list. I was the first woman to drive a load packer. I don't even know what that is. What is a load packer? The load packer is the truck that comes around and pick up your solid waste. So I wind up, I went to school for my CDLs. I got my CDLs, and then um, I went for that. And at the time I was married, and my husband said, I did it for two years. He said he didn't feel comfortable with me driving that load packer. I was so excited. I was just the first woman to drive the load packer. So me being curiosity, we had what is called a mechanical sweeper. You see the big ones with the brush. Uh, So on Saturdays, the guys would sneak me on there, and they would let me drive down the street on the sweeper. I said, oh, man, I'm getting somewhere. And each promotion meant more money. Even as a supervisor or a laborer or whatever, they could not discriminate because I was a woman. So anything I want, I would throw that up and I'd get the job. So after that, I went in the office as a office assistant one. Then I took another promotion as a radio dispatcher. And then I took another promotion that the chief of solid waste gave me a position to put in the driver, the weight, which we're dealing with math again, education, how much tons of trash went to the landfill or Quarantine Road was a landfill or Transfer Station or Vicestown Road. You had to put the drivers and the weight in those little, uh, he made up what we call a track sheet. And I would get on the computer and put all of that in. The end of the day, take it downtown to City Hall, the municipal building, to the chief. So despite Mrs. Harris's ability to work her way up the city career ladder, all with a sixth grade education, she knew she needed to get her GED. Math and reading were involved in everything. And besides, she's discovered these days pretty much any job requires at least a GED. I went to Sinai Hospital to take up an application for housekeeping, making beds. They wanted a high school diploma to make a bed. What woman don't know how to make a bed? I had army kids. I I made a bid up like an army, but I had to have that certificate. That was one encouragement. And I sacrificed as a single parent. All my kids have their diplomas, have great jobs, have their own business. And mommy sat back and said, I think I want to put that cap and robe on and walk across. It's my time. I wanted some me time. So I wanted to wear the cap and ground. I watched the grandkids, everybody walk across the stage. I felt kind of left out. So what was it like going back to school after 60 years? Well, Anna says it was intimidating. But she started going to classes at the Baltimore nonprofit Learning is for Tomorrow, or LIFT. And she was impressed by the one-on-one attention they gave her. They tested me, and then they placed you. And you still, while you're in school, you're still getting tested so you can get graded up. And I came in here, and this teacher, he was just so awesome. The instructor just looked at me every time I got a little confused. And I said, I can't do this. I've been out of school 50 years. I just can't do this. I guess he looked at me and said, oh, you're going to do it. (laughs) So, and I didn't want to, you know, let him down. He became my inspiration. Not only was he picking me up, 
but I didn't want to let him down. And every time I got graded, I just got further and further and further into my education. Another thing that I liked it was we had challenges here. And I would look over and see someone with a disability doing so well that I put in, oh, I can do that. You know, if she can do it, I can do it. Then it became, I got to do it. I have got to do this. I have got to get this piece of paper. Education seemed to be another step in my life that I just couldn't turn away from. It got more and more overwhelming, challenging, hard, but beneficial. I knew I had to do this. And what, what, what I really was blessed about, the instructors, the teachers you have here. I mean, when you looked around and somebody and say, I'll do this for no pay. When I heard that, I felt so loved. I say, oh, he's going to fight my battle, and I'm going to fight it with him. I'm going to get that piece of paper. Mrs. Harris says the most rewarding part of going back to school has been the support she's gotten from her kids. They are as happy as she is to see her continuing her education and finally focusing on herself. Every time I get a grade and I call them, I call Pam, I call my son Karan, and I say, I got a 70 today. You know, I just be so excited. And they, like, supportive to me. They be more happier than I am. Oh, my goodness. And uh, my daughter's in this church where she said every Sunday, she said they are still asking, your mom got a paper yet? She said she working on it. Even though we get a summer break, I'm in the library. I take my schoolwork home, I put it on my phone, and you know, so when I come back, I won't be so far behind, I'll be a step ahead. Who's sitting next to you here on the couch? My son, Karan. You wanna introduce me to him? Tell me, tell me a little bit about him. Karan, he's, he's like special, because he got my back. I mean, all my kids have my back, but he's more, and with me than anybody. He will, and what I do like about him, everybody needs this, he will call me and say, I just called to see how you're doing today. And he don't know how much that means to me because I can be down and just because he acts that I get lifted. You know, he got my back 100%. All he'll say is there anything I can do. I, want, I wonder if you have uh, any words you want to say about, uh, about this remarkable woman here, uh, what she's done for you and what, what, she's, what she's doing for herself right now. How does it feel to see her pursuing her own uh, high school education? She's actually part of the reason I had went and got mine, because she had started her classes. Um, I had no plans on finishing school. I was making the same amount as the teachers that was teaching me in high school while I was still enrolled in school working. So I, I had no reason to believe that a high school diploma was any help. Um, as she taught me just how to be a man like um, growing up I had to sell candy help out with school uniforms a little food take care of myself it was just like as I got older and older and older she just kept pushing me off into the world like you're gonna have to do stuff for yourself and I just want to thank her for that thanks mom I love you I love you too Anna Harris 73 years old on her way to receiving her GED 60 years after she dropped out of school. She hasn't taken the test yet, but she will soon. And when she passes it... Oh, wow. Hitting the lottery. (laughs) 
It's going to be like hitting the lottery because it's going to be an amazing day for me. I, I tell you, my phone going to be jumping off the hook from Armagado, New Mexico to Keelan, Texas. I'll be calling everybody. Say, I got it, I got it, I got it. But I, I can hear them saying, my, we know you could do it. You're tuned to Life in the Balance on WYPR. I'm Aaron Hinkin. We've spent this first part of the program getting to know 73-year-old Anna Harris, who is finally completing her GED. Coming up, we'll talk with Mark Pettis. He's the executive director of Lyft, the nonprofit that's making all this possible for Anna and for hundreds of other adult learners in Baltimore. Stay with us. Welcome back to Life in the Balance. I'm Aaron Henkin. Today on the show, we've been listening to the story of Anna Harris, who dropped out of school after the sixth grade. At age 73, she's just begun the process of completing her GED. Mrs. Harris has been able to get the instruction and guidance and materials that she needs through the help of an organization called Learning is for Tomorrow or Lyft. Lyft is a nonprofit here in Baltimore with a special focus on adult education and adult literacy. Here to tell us about the work that Lyft does is Executive Director Mark Pettis. Mr. Pettis, thank you for being here. Well, thank you for inviting me. So how does Lyft work? Uh, where are you? What services do you offer and uh, who do you offer those services to? Well, we're located uh, 901 North Milton Avenue, just east of Johns Hopkins Hospital. You can come in and become a student uh, with no referral, or you may have referrals that uh, will send you over to us. You have a great space, so we had a chance to visit your offices. You've got four classrooms uh, that are are all really well-equipped with some specialized technology to help your students. Um, Paint a picture of those classrooms, what's in them, and uh, what happens in them. Well, we do have four classrooms, and this is the first time in the history of our organization where we were in such a nice space. It's a tremendous space. uh, It's well-lighted, and it's very welcoming for our students. I usually find that students are apprehensive about going back to school at an older age, and I find it to be a welcoming uh, environment for them to be there, and they seem to really enjoy it. Uh, So in each classroom, uh, we certainly have technology, and um, we have one main computer lab, 12 station computer lab and then we in each of the uh, remaining three classrooms uh, we have uh, additional computers uh, that are connected to the internet and in, uh, to printers and so that teachers can work with students in real time uh, using technology in each of the classrooms uh, we have specialized uh, technology for for folks who present with some specific issues. Um, we do everything from zero reading up to GED preparation, uh, but we're known as an organization that works with folks with lots of learning challenges, learning disabilities. Uh, we also do uh, classes for folks who are deaf and hard of hearing and folks who are blind and low vision. And so we have some adaptive and special technology uh, that we utilize for those folks. Tell us about your uh, nonprofit status. I mean, w- w- how do you get your funding? How do you keep all these classes free? 
Well, historically, we've uh, been funded through the, originally it was the Maryland State Department of Education, uh, and then a few years ago, uh, adult education moved over to the Department of Labor Licensing and Regulation. Uh, and normally, we receive those grants. Uh, we also have a community development block grant from Baltimore City. Um, and uh, uh, currently, uh, we've received some small individual donations. How many uh, adult learners have you got in your program right now? Currently, uh, we, uh, well, this past year, we, um, we served uh, 126 learners, but our funding has been reduced over the last year. Uh, but typically, in a regular year for us, we would serve anywhere from 325 to 350 individuals. Say a little bit more about this idea of uh, adult learning and adult literacy being shifted into, what was the department? Department of Labor, Licensing, and Regulation. That is a philosophical shift, I guess, or a, a, a sort of a curriculum shift where um, adult literacy is much more f- laser focused on uh, literacy for specific job related skills. Help me understand that that sort of shift in the idea of adult literacy. It's been shifted to, and the, and the focus now has been really on placing individuals in, in the workforce or getting them back into the workforce or sometimes for the first time having them have their first job. But that shift has come at a cost uh, in terms of, of not being able to focus completely on the literacy aspect of it. Yeah, I imagine there are pros and cons. You get students sort of through the program faster, but they walk away perhaps with less than they would otherwise. I think it's been a challenging uh, uh, problem to have, Um, that uh, especially with folks uh, who present with learning challenges, learning disabilities and things like that. Uh, I have found that it was really difficult for a small community-based nonprofit organization like Lyft uh, to be able to actually meet the new requirements and the new milestones for success uh, under the new Workforce uh, Innovation Opportunity Act. You've spoken in general terms about the sorts of people that can walk in the door for your program. Um, paint a picture of some of them. I mean, are they are they generally older folks like Mrs. Harris, who we met in the first segment of our program? Uh, where, where are these folks coming from? How long has it been since uh, they were in school and sort of what's where are they starting? Well, we have everyone from age of 18 and in Maryland now, um, 18 uh, is, is the age at uh, which you can not go to high school any longer. That, that changed over the last few years. Um, so we have everyone from age 18 and our oldest student was 83. Uh, and I would say our average age is somewhere in, in the early 30s. How many people in Baltimore City are like currently in need of completing their education? Well, as as of 2017, uh, all of the literacy providers, the four literacy providers in Baltimore City, looked at statistics, and uh, in Baltimore City alone, uh, it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 98,000. How many years have you been doing this? Uh, this is my 23rd. I understand you have a personal stake in uh, in this field um, and just sort of the results it can produce. T- talk to me about your dad. Uh, yes, actually, I do. Uh, my father was uh, was completely illiterate. Um, uh, he couldn't read or write. Uh, and my mom, she did make it to the eighth grade. Uh, and so uh, from a personal standpoint, I've experienced being in a family, being in a household where literacy was a challenge. Uh, one of the saving graces for us is that both of my parents uh, really, really valued education. And that was 
I think, a step up for us. I have two older brothers. They're both retired now. And uh, uh, they were very successful business-wise and, and uh, financially. And, uh, <laughs> and I went the other route. I, I went more of an academic route. Uh, but truly, all three uh, uh, were we, I think, we represented the best of what our parents wanted but couldn't have for themselves. What was it like for them and for you when you got to that point where you had advanced further in your education than either of them ever had? Uh, they were just proud. Uh, and, you know, it, it for me, it really did trigger and signal a desire to want to help make that not be the same for other people uh, for, for not, in terms of, of my parents. I didn't want to see anyone have to go through that again. And uh, I, I saw the challenges and the difficulties they went through. Um, I saw the embarrassment that my father would have when he couldn't read. Um, I saw the partnership that my parents had because my mom could read like the wind and, um, and how she would support him. And they had such a system, but I didn't want anybody to have to do that again. And I also saw financially how it took a toll. And I, uh, I really think that it just at times wore them out. Tell me what it's like to see a student, an adult learner like Mrs. Harris, uh, making her way through the program and seeing that light at the end of the tunnel, that test she's going to take. Uh, she talks about how she feels as that date approaches and just sort of what it means to her. I mean, to, to see those stories it must be really meaningful for you. Well, it, it, I haven't worked a day in 23 years. And, uh, you know, I can't really truly explain what a feeling it is to go in there every day and to watch these folks grow and to know that I'm not doing it, my, our teachers, uh, we're not doing it for them. We're creating a space where they can just become what they were on the path to do at some point, and then things just got in the way. Yeah, I mean, you, you hear Mrs. Harris's story, and you hear the story of someone, you hear somebody saying, um, I'm finally getting around to having some me time again. Um, you know, it wasn't, you know, lack of ambition uh, or interest that caused her educational process to be disrupted. It was all of a sudden having a family of her own to take care of, and then 50 years later, finally getting around to this experience. And it's not the sort of job prospect rewards of that GED are, are one reward, but also there's a, there's a more intangible reward, it seems, in, wrapped up in this package as well. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I can honestly say that the GED achievement is is not the part that excites me. It's it's watching folks move from that initial stage of apprehension, and then they start, and then they uh, they're unsure, and uh, and then to watch that gradual shift and change as they realize that they're becoming more knowledgeable and more self sufficient. And, you know, in our mission statement, you know, we talk about being a, an independent, lifelong learner, self-reliant. And we can see that as they begin our program and as they move through the process, there's a shift and a change that occurs. And that's truly the exciting part. Uh, it, it's just amazing to watch the confidence that they start to exude because they now feel like they have some control over their lives. I don't know if Mrs. Harris has mentioned this to you or not. She probably has. But um, when we uh, interviewed her, she said, uh, you know, I have some people who are saying, you should go ahead and just take this test now. You'll probably do fine. You'll get a 70 or whatever you need to pass. And she says, that may be true, but I'm, I'm waiting until I finish 
my studies because I really want to ace this test. It's not just getting the certificate that matters to her at this point. It's there's something she's really personally invested in making her mark, if you will. Well, and she is, and she, that's exactly it. She is invested. And, uh, you know, uh, again, the test is one aspect of it, but to watch folks take ownership and it's taking ownership of their own direction. It's their own lives. And, and, and I'll, I'll say this and I, I'm, I'm a bit biased about this, but, uh, Lyft is a special place. Um, Lyft's been around since 1988, uh, so I didn't start it, um, and uh, it was started by a woman named Cinder Hipke, uh, and uh, I know that I am just a steward of what Lyft is, but I also know that it's about the students. That's why we're there, and, and, and there's an energy that's very special about Lyft, and there's an energy that's very special about the students being connected and being part of the whole experience. And, and they are such a part of it for each other as well. You, Because of the sort of budgetary shuffling around, you guys are operating on a, a sort of a much more skeletal staff right now. Is that, do you take volunteers? Can folks get involved in a, in a sort of a helper capacity? Absolutely. At this point, uh, you know, traditionally, and, and again, this was, be, and, and we chose not to, to, to pursue uh, the new round of grant, uh, the, the new grant application round uh, last year because of uh, the nature of what we do, uh, the challenges of our individual learners. We knew that we wouldn't hit some of the new targets with the employment component. Uh, you know, we are an adult literacy organization. We work with folks who have lots of challenges. Um, so uh, we knew that the, the on-paper targets weren't for us. Um, but we have reduced. At one point, we had 14 employees and ran 17 classes. Currently, we have two part-time employees. I'm one of them. And, um, uh, and we ran this past year with uh, two additional volunteers. But we still, still again, we still served um, 136 individuals. Wow. Um, so, we, yes, we can use, we can certainly use uh, volunteers. Uh, we also can certainly use donations. So um, uh, we are very much on a, a skeleton uh, budget. And um, but with that said, you know, we're still relatively stable and, uh, you know, we've operated a full gear in that capacity and we're moving into a next year. We start our new classes on September 17th. Let's speak specifically about the job market these days and uh, education requirements uh, for any given job. I mean, it seems like the trend anecdotally is that more and more jobs require a GED these days. Absolutely. Um, and and that can be problematic. So one of the positives I think about having labor and literacy work a little bit more closely together is that I don't I don't think uh, that employers in the past have understood the challenges, the difficulties, and how basically hard it is to get a GED. Um, so I think that there's an awareness component that's that, that's actually uh, that's been a positive out of uh, of the marriage. Um, I but I also think that. Uh, Sometimes they have unrealistic expectations about how quickly the individuals can do it. Um, um, and some may not. Some may not. Uh, you know, if, if we have to address learning disabilities and learning challenges and a variety of things like that, that may pose a, a greater challenge in the long run. Um, but yeah, so many employers now are requiring that as a minimum just in terms of uh, uh, what they want folks walking in the door with. So that's become more of a challenge for us as well, um, uh, not just us, but any of the literacy providers uh, who do a wonderful job 
with the restrictions that they have put in, upon them. And we're not the only folks with with financial challenges uh, um, in terms of, uh, I, you know, one of my one of my feelings. And, and I've said this before, obviously uh, not here, um, but this field, it's it's uh, there's uh, it's a part time. It's there's part time money for part time people and it's a full time issue. And so I think literacy in general, not just not just for us, not just in Baltimore, but I think financial there's there are great financial challenges for all the organizations that provide these services. So what is uh, Lyft going to look like a year from now, five years from now? What's the what's your goal for Lyft moving forward? Well, what we really would like to do is is to be better at what we do and who we are. Traditionally, uh, we were the organization that other organizations. Uh, uh, would refer students, they would refer the, the students to us that they felt would be better served by our expertise working with folks with learning disabilities, learning challenges, who are, who are blind and low vision, who were deaf and hard of hearing. And so we, were, we had a wonderful relationship, and still do, with the other providers where if they knew that uh, they couldn't serve an individual, they would send them to us. So that's what we do, and that's what we're very good at doing. Um, what we would like to uh, do is to continue, but more in that capacity. Again, we're not our infrastructure, the size of who we are. We we can't be an employment agency. We can't we can't be a training ground for for various professions. What we can do is we can do what we do best, which is provide literacy services for folks who are at a uh, lower literacy ability level, uh, and that's that's been. Uh, the role that we've served for many years. And there, there is no money to say, oh, Lyft, this is what you do. We're paying you for that. We were just one of many different literacy providers. But our specialization and our expertise uh, came into play and everyone knew. So that's where they would send folks. Um, we'd like to continue to do that. We would like to find different funding streams that would allow us to continue to and even grow. I just keep thinking about the sort of intangible kind of byproduct benefits of that education later in life and thinking about what I heard in Mrs. Harris's voice when, when she was talking about her classes. Um, this is a real renaissance for her. You can hear the pride and excitement in her voice. And um, it's also kind of incredible that she's inspired her kids. Her son went and got his GED because he saw his mom getting hers. I mean, I guess education can become a, a family affair once you once you see one person kind of making that stride. What impact does it have on families when adult students take charge of their, their education late in the game like that? I think it's just true role modeling at its best. Uh, you know, it, 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 uh, I look at my own situation and, um, you know, we were inspired, both my brothers and myself were inspired by our parents' drive for the importance of education. You know, when we were, when we were small, uh, um, we, my mom dragged us to every museum and she dragged us every place she could, any place that, that where we could uh, uh, just learn. Uh, and and I think it spreads. And I think within any situation, you know, you have a beginning, you have a start, and you have something that uh, that uh, is inspiring. And I think it's it's very contagious. Uh, I, we've seen. I at one point we had uh, at Lyft, we had a grandmother, mother, and a granddaughter in school at the same time. Wow. Um, and uh, so I mean, I think that speaks for itself. Uh, and to watch that transmission of the importance, certainly, of education and understanding. Because, again, education 
True education means that you can rely on yourself. You have input. You can take control of your life. And, and, and I would have to say, you know, it doesn't matter what age you start, but it certainly has effect on all those around you. Mark Pettis, executive director of Lift Learning is for Tomorrow, an adult learning and nonprofit here in Baltimore doing amazing work. Mark, thank you for your time today. Thank you so much. And, you know, uh, uh, I just really appreciate you giving a voice to our learners. And, and uh, it, it means the world to me. Well, we're grateful to Mrs. Harris and we're grateful to you as well. Thanks again. Thank you. You're tuned to Life in the Balance. I'm Aaron Hankin. Coming up, we'll be talking about the lifelong repercussions for those who don't complete their education. Stay with us. I'm Aaron Henkin. Welcome back to Life in the Balance. This is a monthly show where we focus on one person and the issues that person faces in his or her own life. We stay focused on the real people behind the policy talk and the statistics. Today, we had the opportunity to meet Anna Harris. She dropped out of school after sixth grade. She's now 73 years old and pursuing her GED. Thanks to the work of a local nonprofit, Learning is for Tomorrow, or LIFT. Now to help us understand the implications and the importance of education is Assistant Professor Tara Brown. She teaches in the Department of Teaching and Learning Policy and Leadership at the University of Maryland's College of Education. And Professor Brown, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Your research, as I understand it, focuses on urban schools. Talk about uh, some of the realities of education here in Baltimore City. What unique challenges do our schools have? Whoa, (laughs) there are a lot of them. Um, I think Baltimore, like most major cities, um, is facing a variety of different problems, one of which is low graduation rates, um, especially in cities where you're serving a high minority, high poverty population, so kids of color, kids coming from low-income backgrounds. So I, the way I see it is there's a host of factors outside of the school that make it challenging for kids to focus on learning. So um, just the vestiges of poverty, I would say. So challenges with housing, challenges with different kinds of crime in the community, trauma that young people are going through and that families are going through as well, and families not having the resources, the adequate resources to support young people can make it very challenging once they get in the school to kind of focus on learning. And then inside the school, you have a variety of other challenges, um, especially now in this high-stakes era of um, testing and remediation. And I think that young people are often not in learning environments that are engaging to them, um, that they're not learning things that, that are really hooking into their interests and their desires. Uh, I think we also have a problem with uh, relationships between, especially in large schools, large high schools, relationships between teachers and students and administrators and students. So a lot of students are getting lost. And in my own research, finding that a lot of young people who leave school before graduating often say that they didn't have a meaningful relationship with an adult in the building. And that was a a huge contributing factor to how they were able to just sort of drift off and um, fall 
in the cracks with without anybody paying attention. You mentioned the national uh, graduation rate is you around 80%? Yeah, a little over 80 now. Baltimore yeah. County, around 70%. Around 70%. You recently authored a study. Uh, the study is called Uncredentialed Young Adults Living Without a Secondary Degree. Tell us about what you found in your research. Okay, so that study um, was looking at 18 to 24-year-olds who left high school before graduating and hadn't earned a GED. And it's a participatory action research project, which means that I had young people from that population on the research team. I trained them in research, and they did the research with me. So it's sort of the idea is research with, not research on communities. Mm -hmm. So it's working with communities. Uh, so we looked at young people's schooling experiences and also their post-school experiences to try to understand kind of the progression of what happened, that they left school, and then what have been the challenges since they left school. So we found probably what a lot of people would expect to find, um, tremendous difficulties in the labor market without a secondary degree. So this was uh, the community it was done in is an urban community. It was predominantly Latino. Uh, Puerto Rican and Dominican, um, but sharing many of the same challenges that cities like Baltimore, Philadelphia, uh, cities all over the country face. And we also found that uh, particularly for the young men, um, a lot of the young men as a way to provide for themselves and their families without having access to formal jobs are turning to the informal labor market, the drug market, other kind of um, what we would call income-generating illegal activities. So I think the not having that credential and in combination with living in a community where um, employment rates are high and there aren't enough jobs is contributing to young people getting involved in illegal activity. And then we know we have this explosion. We've had this explosion of incarceration over the last several decades. When we talk about the statistics related to incomplete education, they are, to state the obvious, um, very much correlating with, with socioeconomic factors. Talk to me about how much race, how much class um, goes into the equation here uh, and the educational system and who comes out with a degree and who doesn't. So, well, I can start by sort of talking about at the national level, so the the latest reports, um, Building a Grad Nation report, um, which comes out every year. So the white graduation rate overall, this is national, is at 88%. And for, for Latinos, it's 79%. And for black, it's 76%. So there, even though graduation rates have increased for all groups over the last dec decade pretty significantly, there still is a big gap um, between whites and then whites and Asians and blacks and Latinos on the other end. So uh, we still have a problem <laughs> with um, disparate impact according to race and ethnicity. From your research, I wonder what you've learned about methods for keeping kids on track uh, when it comes to completing their education. So one thing that we found that's really important, and I said mentioned this earlier, is relationships, building relationships um, between the adults in the building and the young people. 
So there have been some different um, innovative programs in high schools around the country, sort of having advisories, having certain number of students being assigned to uh, an adult in the building, whether it's a teacher, a counselor, an administrator, that they are responsible for checking up on them, making sure they're coming to school, making sure they're getting their work done, so that somebody is accountable for that young person, because often nobody is accountable for individual students. So I think having that relationship and having someone watching (laughs) really helps. Easier to slip through the cracks when you feel like you're invisible. Exactly, yes. How did you get interested in this field work yourself? So I used to be a high school teacher in Boston Public Schools. That's where I'm from, Boston. And my first assignment was in an alternative school, which uh, is sort of is a school for young people who had been suspended long term or expelled from the mainstream public schools. And as you can imagine, among those students in particular, the rates of school leaving are really, really high. So that's how I got interested in. So my research is on school leaving. I don't call it dropout anymore. I'm trying to um, change that language (laughs) and certainly not calling individuals dropouts. So um, looking at school leaving and also disciplinary action, exclusionary disciplinary action. So suspension, expulsion, and that we, we know when young people are suspended and expelled that they are much more likely, I mean exponentially more likely to leave school if they've experienced some those disciplinary actions. And we also know that black students, particularly black boys and adolescents and young men, um, are suspended and expelled from school at a grossly disproportionate rate compared to other students. Just how predetermined is your educational outcome based on who your parents are and what your zip code is? It's the most important determinant. I mean, statistically, research has consistently shown since uh, the Coleman report in the 1960s that socioeconomic background, and it's measured in different ways. Um, I think in public education, we tend to think about it in terms of income and free and reduced lunch, but different researchers measure it in different ways. So it has to do with income. It has to do with um, parents' education, mostly the mothers that stressed. So there are a variety of different indicators for socioeconomic status, but it's consistently been the most significant predictor of academic uh, achievement and outcomes. So the young students who are swimming upstream the most are the ones who have sort of the least safety net underneath them if they fail. Absolutely. Absolutely. It occurs to me that we've been talking about the GED all hour, um, and we've never gotten down to brass tacks about exactly what the test is, uh, what it does, and sort of where it's at these days. I I understand it's changed a bit in recent years. Yes. So the GED, it's actually, it's not a single test. It's a series of five tests on five different disciplines, like, say, mathematics and writing, um, five tests. And it was overhauled beginning January 1 in 2014. And there are quite a few changes that happened. First of all, the GED had always been administered by a a nonprofit organization, the American Council on Education. And the new 
iteration of the test was a collaboration between that organization and Pearson, which is probably the largest textbook manufacturer in the country, maybe even worldwide, So, which is a for-profit organization. So we kind of see, uh, you know, I think we've been seeing this across the educational spe- spectrum that education has become a market. So some of these uh, components of education are being privatized. Uh, along with that, the the tests got much more difficult. So the idea that was that the tests would be more aligned with the Common Core standards. So the tests got more difficult. They got more expensive. So it varies from state to state, but in some states you could pay up to 125 per test, and there are five tests, whereas before you might pay 100, 125 for the all five tests. So the, yeah, so the price has gone up as well. Um, and the there's been an interesting sort of shift in the passing rates and also the numbers of people who are taking the GED test. So after the new test was implemented, the the passing rates dropped by probably between 20 and 30 percent. Since then, the passing rates have crept up again. I think the passing rates now are are up near 80 percent. So they've kind of recovered. But what, what accounts for that? Uh, I think probably better preparation. So everybody who'd been preparing students for the GED had to right. have a wake up call. I guess <laughs> right, and, right. So okay. I think the preparation has has you know. Actually, they ramped up pretty well, Mm -hmm. so ramping up the training to really match what the competencies that are being measured on the test. But what has happened since uh, since the new test was implemented, the numbers of people who have taken the GED has dropped almost by half. So some of that could have to do with the rising graduation rate, but that certainly wouldn't account for the precipitous drop in the numbers of people. So it has been discussed uh, that perhaps it's the the challenge, the difficulty of the test that is sort of keeping people from from even trying to take the test. So that that's really worrisome if that is the case. So as a bar for entry, it's gotten more difficult and more expensive. Yes. To take and pass the GED. Right. So that could be I, the expense could also be a problem as well. Although there are quite a few nonprofit organizations have kind of risen up um, to kind of help people pay for that test if they want to take it. So there have been some resources devoted to that. That's an interesting philosophical conundrum to figure out, isn't it? That, I mean, I guess it's a benefit to employers to have this test be that much more difficult to pass because you've presumably got that much more sort of qualified pool of talent, but it's a much smaller pool of talent. I would say, however, that the, and there's been a lot of research done on this as well, that it really is the credential and what it signals that is actually more important, <laughs> at least in the labor market, than the than the actual skills and competencies that you have. And that's part of the problem of the the difference between the high school diploma and the GED. So for employers, a lot of employers, the GED signals that that person couldn't cut it in high school, that they weren't they didn't persevere, they weren't hard working. So it's kind of like the symbolic value of the GED versus the high school diploma that is also depressing the value of the GED as compared to the high school diploma. Huh. I guess there is Strangely, from an employer's perspective, 
perhaps some kind of a stigma that goes along with someone yes. who's got the GED. Absolutely. Because what did you do wrong to right. be in a situation where you had to get a GED? Absolutely. But I would like to say that even though there are many problems <laughs> with the GED in terms of its you know, return value in the labor market, it can be, as you talked about with your, your guest, um, for people who earn the GED, it's often an amazing boost in self-confidence and a sense of accomplishment and in terms of their identity. So it definitely has value in that way and often encourages people then to go on and, and feel like they can accomplish even more if they can pass a GED test. Do you have any advice for 73-year-old uh, Anna Harris as she gets ready to take her GED tests? Yes, you can do it. <laughs> you can do it. I've seen so many people who felt that they said, I was never good in school, I can't do it, that that passed the test with flying colors. So I highly encourage her. I think it's wonderful that she's taking on this challenge. Assistant Professor Tara Brown from the University of Maryland College of Education, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to Life in the Balance. I'm Aaron Henkin. We like to close out the show with some words of wisdom from our featured guest, in this case, Mrs. Anna Harris. We're inspired by her grit and determination pursuing her GED at 73 years old. And she has some advice for any other older learners out there who might be listening. But I will say to anyone, you're never too old to go back and get some something that is so rewarding in your lifetime. There is numerous, numerous of programs, and I just happen to look up on the best. There is time and patience in your city home and not doing anything. The best thing to do now is come on out and get it because when you sign off on that small print on some of these contracts that you don't understand, you need to come back to school to teach you how to read them right because you just lost a lot of money. And this education is free. That's a good, that's another thing about it. It is free. I'm telling you, I feel like I'm in a new life. Come join us. Life in the Balance is an original production of WYPR. The show airs the first Wednesday of the month at 1 p.m. and again at 9 p.m. Life in the Balance is produced and edited by Katie Marquette. You can hear previous episodes online at wypr.org slash podcast central. Special thank you to Anna Harris for sharing her story with us. For 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Aaron Hinkin. Thanks for listening.